Wildish is a story about the humans tangled in the world of wild horse management, activists aching for the animals to be wild, those who see them as invasive, and the people with the Bureau of Land Management faced with balancing the horse as a relic of Wild West heritage, along with its impact on the landscape. From High Country News, in collaboration with Alan Warda's Media, I'm Anna Coburn, and this is Wildish. When Tammy Colt was a little girl, she wrote a poem about the terrible plight of wild horses in a wild horse's perspective. It won a contest. I think I taught myself to read by the age of five by reading anything I could get my hands on, including our family set of encyclopedias where there was anything about horses. I've worked professionally as a horseman, um, including in the world of thoroughbred horse racing. The reason I reached out to Tammy is because she is a wildlife biologist. I can fully understand anthropomorphism of horses when you deal with them one-on-one. Anthropomorphism, that's the word of the day. The attribution of human characteristics or behavior to a god, animal, or object. I actually have people who are newer friends in my life, or, you know, like over the last few years, who thought Harry that I talk about all the time was my husband because of the way I talk about him, and that's my horse. I mean, I I get it, but you you can't manage them that way. You know, we manage wildlife as a population, not as individuals. Anthropomorphism is not necessarily a bad thing. It seems like an outdated school of thought, but we are circling back to it, especially in the environmental world. Globally, we apply it to land and to horses. We tame them both. From High Country News, in collaboration with Alan Warda's Media, this is Wildish. Tammy describes herself as a wildlife biologist, but wild horse lover, because those two descriptions don't typically fall on the same side of the fence. She's based in Pennsylvania and does habitat management and land conservation. Her interest in wild horses and the wild horse conundrum brings her west, and she is also a proud adopter of a Mustang. Hopefully Harry isn't too jealous. Because of Tammy's profession as a wildlife biologist, I wanted to know her thoughts on wild horses. It's it's kind of the difference between your pet dog and a pack of wolves, you know, still beautiful, still behaviorally really cool to watch and, and things like that. But we have these romantic notions of them. And the situation with wild horses, there are places where all of the horses and all of the wildlife within a five-mile range have to share one trickle of water in a spring. There's definite wildlife impacts, aquatic resources impacts, and we should care about that. We should all know about that and care about that. And there are species, including plant species and maybe invertebrates and things, that might be completely lost due to this overpopulation of horses. So everybody should know something about this, but very, very few people do, and that's really an injustice to us, the taxpayer, an injustice to the wildlife and the resources out there on that range, and an injustice to the horses themselves. Tammy recently attended a wild horse symposium in Nevada. She got a tour from the people who work for the Wild Horse and Burrow Program. For those of us in the competitive horse world that have nothing to do directly with the 
wild horses, it's it's easy to believe that those are the bad guys. The thing that impressed me about those people was they they're actually horsemen themselves. They love those horses the, the way I do. Like they have a lot of respect and awe of those horses and they want to do right by them. They're doing their job and they're doing what they can with what they have right now to manage them. I asked Tammy what her thoughts were about the roundups. When they're herded up and they're, and they're brought into these corrals, a lot of people are astir about family units getting broken up. One of the things that the BLM does for management and for safety and everything is split the males and females right away. It's the, the first divide that happens. So you're breaking up these family bands. And people equate that to us humans and our families. In horse behavior, it's really not like that. There's not that sort of, you know, that's my mom. Where did my mom go? And that's my sister. And that's my dad. You know, there's, there's not that connection. Even the name wild horses is controversial. Um, most wildlife biologists will correct you and say feral um, because they're feral. That's a domesticated species that has been let loose. Do we manage them like a wild animal? Where again, you know, we, we have uh, hunting seasons and <laughs> nuisance trapping and things like that for wild species when the population gets too big. Do we manage them like livestock then? They're really not livestock either because at the moment they're not domestic, but then e even then livestock, we, we butcher or we call the herd. So we're not doing that either. They, they fall between the cracks. But the one thing that we have to remember, there's a huge cultural significance to the horse. Our human culture evolved with the domestication of the horse. They're important to so many different aspects of it. And so many of us humans deep down have this attachment to them. So we have to be careful in that we can't be too cold and purely scientific about it. We have to incorporate that social aspect in their management. It's not just the culture of the United States either. Let's go clear across the globe. It's incredibly complex because you're trying to juggle people who want to protect the native environment and people who want to stick to a more traditionalist, a more Australian way of life, I guess. I'm Laura Wilson. I'm studying an undergraduate bachelor's degree in history and philosophy. And though she attends college in the States, Laura calls her home Australia. Australia has a spookily similar issue with their Brumbies as the U.S. has with our Mustangs. Brumbies are not native to Australia. They are, by all means, an introduced species. And they would have arrived with European settlers um, sometime in the late 1700s. People released domestic horses and allowed them to breed. And so... Brumbies are now contained. So areas that the government regulates. So national parks are a big area. Reserves can have them. Um, and the outback can have them as well. A lot of people associate the bloodlines with the, of the Brumbies with kind of like the original settlement for the European side of this country. So people think that the Brumby represents that colonial spirit, the desire to go out and produce something and create something and build a life for yourself. They correlate the industry and the success of Australia with the animals and the people who helped create that happen in the very beginning. 
So there's this sort of romantic connotation towards them. And um, the people who have that viewpoint really see the Brumby as this majestic, powerful, valuable piece of Australian history that we need to protect. I asked Laura to tell me about her personal experiences with Brumbies. And my dad and I have done the whole going up and camping and riding around and looking at the Brumbies, and it's magical. It's such a beautiful experience. The landscape is incredible, and being able to use a horse to get around on the landscape really gives you access to it in a way that you can't get if you go hiking. And if you're out riding on your your domesticated horse that you're best friends with and this whole herd of Brumbies will come running up to you and be, you know, trotting and cantering around you and they're so curious and friendly and they want to figure out who you are and what you're doing. It's one of those experiences that gives you chills when it happens. But I also have ridden to the creeks and I've seen the damage that the hooves do to the environment and I've seen how conceptually it totally makes sense to me that they're they're detrimental to the native species. I think that I would like to see the Brumbies continue and I think that they should definitely be a part of our national park system and our culture. But I think that their numbers need to be regulated probably more heavily than they currently are. It's hard to find a method that everybody agrees with, I guess. And because we're talking about a live animal, it's incredibly contentious and people get incredibly heated about it and the media continually inflames the situation. Does that sound familiar? She says the recent bushfires have pushed the Brumby debate even further. Because we've gone from being in a couple of seasons where there was plenty of feed and water was available and the landscape was thriving, the bushfires have come through and really wiped out that element to it. So now the national parks are struggling and we've lost a lot of wildlife. We're trying to decide, do we prioritize the native animals in terms of their resource allocation? At which point do we need to reduce Brumby numbers to make sure that there's grass and water available for the others? Or do we maintain them on the same level of priority and and continue to support them and rehabilitate them through the fires. Because of her double major in history and philosophy, she draws a connection between humans and our attachment to our story, our cultures, and how the Australian Brumbies represent that. Everybody wants their history to be understood and passed on and respected. And trying to figure out how to balance everybody's history with one another is incredibly challenging. So I recognize that Brumbies are not native to Australia and Mustangs were not native to America. And so understanding that there is always going to be a group of indigenous population who are marginalized by the continuation and the existence of these breaches is really tough because I, I want culture and I want society to recognize that people existed before European settlement. But I also understand that European settlement is history and it needs to be respected and it needs to be understood. Here's the difference. North America did have a species of equine a long time ago. Then they disappeared, at the latest 11,000 years ago. Even though the species of equine was considerably smaller, some argue that they moved across the land bridge into Russia and further evolved into what we know of horses today. And they simply returned home to North America with European explorers. 
but we can't deny the detrimental impact that exploration had on the indigenous populations that were here in North America. So what about our indigenous peoples? Are they dealing with modern day wild horses? I drove down to the Navajo Nation to find out. Lacey Salabai and I sat down by some corrals where a few dozen curious horses were staring at us. I'm a senior extension agent with the Navajo Nation Department of Agriculture under the Horse Management Program. Wow, that's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Under the Horse Management Program, I've been employed for a little over a year now, but with the Department of Agriculture, I started back in, what, 2010? When the Spanish conquistadors brought horses over, Native Americans were fascinated they became an integral part of the Navajo culture. These horses, they're a part of our creation stories. And when I say creation stories, I mean, just like in the Bible when, uh, you know, the world was created, the seven days and everything. So these horses are, are part of our creation stories here on Navajo Nation. And they were designed as a form of protection. And they were given to us as a tool to utilize basically slay the monsters and there was twins they went up to the sun and asked the sun which was their father for tools to help slay the monsters and we're not talking you know boogeyman under your bed kind of monsters we're talking starvation and um, old age and stuff like that so this is one of the tools or one of the weapons that was given to them and brought it back down so with that being said you hear a lot of the horse in our songs and our teachings And that's because they did play such a significant role in those creation stories. So the horse was put together with different aspects. Um, The mane and the tail are considered rain. And then the frog of the hoof is an arrowhead, which is um, protection in our culture. The rainbow was the body. But these curious horses staring at us didn't seem so majestic at all. They looked nothing like the horses I had seen in the sand wash or the salt wells with Otelia. They were skinny, with open sores. One had an injured leg. The state of these horses reflect the land that surrounds us, not just in the Navajo Nation, but on BLM lands in New Mexico, in Arizona, and in Nevada especially. Unlike the salt wells and the sand wash, these places are starved for water. This is the kind of place that Tammy Colt described. BLM's number of wild horses do not include the Navajo Nation. And even though these horses are part of their origin, the Navajo Nation still has to do something about overpopulation. Last year, about this time, we implemented the Equine Reward Program, and it was started and headed up by Ms. Roxy June. She got a grant, an invasive species grant, um, and in that grant, she implemented the equine reward program. Since then, it's kind of just taken off. And what the equine reward program is, it's a program that we put in place to allow Navajo individuals to bring horses in that are considered feral, stray, wild, whatever you may want to call it, which is where the Navajo Nation provides a reward of $100 a head for anything over a year. We not only have horses here, but we have cattle, we have sheep. So for the Navajo people, um, owning livestock, it's it's considered, um, it's a livelihood, if you will. And um, it's thought that the more animals or the more livestock you have, the richer you are, which um, in today's society doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So with that being said, we, we have a 
huge issue with overpopulation of feral horses and there there's no resources for them at this point they're beginning to starve um, they're beginning to die of dehydration they're inbreeding um, we have a lot of dwarf horses some of these horses aren't even carrying full term because so they're so malnourished so these horses next to us were brought by people of the tribe voluntarily. This program has become more successful than when they solely did roundups with four-wheelers and wranglers. Because when we did do roundups, or we still do, um, but when we were extremely active with it, we, did, there, we came across a lot of people that were upset. It became a issue for our staff, you know, the safety of our staff and the safety of the horses and the safety of the public. So. This is just kind of another form of reducing the population. The next story Lacey tells me is graphic, but it shows the reality of having 30,000 horses. Here on the Navajo Nation, there was an event that took place, I think it was summer last year. I don't have an official count off the top of my head, but what was reported was close to 300 horses in an earth dam. They basically, they were looking for water and they went into this earth dam. There was a small little pond in the middle of this earth dam and they were trying to access that. And in trying to access that, they all got stuck in the mud and they basically just starved to death and died of dehydration. They're stuck in the mud. Closest city to us for a lot of places is Albuquerque, New Mexico or Phoenix or Farmington. And that's probably anywhere from two to three hour drive. The location of that earth dam was in a very remote area. They weren't able to carry their pregnancies full term. There was fetuses on the ground. I mean, there was foals that were developed, but still in the sack that they couldn't carry um, just due to malnourishment. And what we did remove, we'd load them in the trailers and, and they'd fall down as soon as they'd go into the trailers. We had a couple horses that we were able to entrap, which is basically where we set up panels around a water source and we turn on that water and we allow the horses to just walk in and we close the gate behind them. So we were able to entrap a couple, they walked in, they drank and they fell dead. And so it was a pretty horrific scene. Um, and I, I don't hate horses. I mean, horses are my passion. I love these animals and that choked me up. It was, it was rough to watch and see. These are powerful and strong animals that deserve respect and they're strays from here to Gallup you can count six horses on the side of the road and they're roadkill it's it's considered normal it doesn't even phase us we'll drive by and don't even take a second look because it's it's just like a dog being hit or a cat being hit it doesn't it doesn't phase us at all. The Navajo Nation isn't the only Native American sovereign nation that has a population of wild horses, but they have been the ones with the most press. Where my kitchen sits in Gunnison, Colorado is formerly Ute land, and the Utes were also considered horse people. They have their own origin stories about the horse. But here in the Navajo Nation, Lacey is still trying to balance culture and the health of the land. We don't want to remove all of the wild horses we, or the feral horses. We want to remove enough to where we can manage what's there. I guess I just, I just want the public to understand that we're not beating on these horses out here. We're not loading them up and stacking them on top of each other into a semi to where they're, you know, falling down. It's easier to handle these horses in a quiet, 
respectful manner than it is screaming at them and beating at beating on them because they don't respond as well. So, yeah. and just just like right now, Kola didn't even do anything. He opened two gates and they walked right in. So you didn't hear any screaming, you didn't hear any yelling because we, we don't do that. Um, we treat them with the respect that they deserve. And it's unfortunate that they have to go through, they have to be removed, but it is what it is. Um, right now it's we've come to that point where we have to decide between these horses and our land. Horses can mean a lot to people from all different backgrounds. That's why this issue is so hard to solve. This is not an issue that's unique to the Bureau of Land Management and United States Public Land. I decided I wanted to see a helicopter roundup for myself. And that's exactly what you'll hear in the next episode. I'd like to thank everyone who participated in this episode. My name is Anna Coburn, and this is Wildish. Thanks for listening. The series Wildish was made possible by Alan Wardas Media, Brigham Young University's Charles Red Center, Western Colorado University's Graduate Studies and Master in Environmental Management program, the Margie and John Haley Fund, and Dr. Corey Knapp. A big thank you to High Country News for publishing Wildish, and you for listening. Please rate Wildish wherever you get your podcasts.